The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Now just as a refresher, this letter from Paul is to his protege and his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy. Paul is seeking to strengthen Timothy because it seems that Timothy has lost some of his fire. He's lost that zeal for the Lord. That is why Paul commends him to rekindle that fire of his love for God. Last time we heard Paul exhorting Timothy to be fearless. I have not given you a spirit of fear. He argued that God has not gifted Timothy with cowardice. Rather, he has gifted Timothy with power and with love and with self-control, which leads us nicely into where we are right now. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. God, just as we have been singing, you are mighty to save. And Lord, in this passage, we see the way in which you have shown your might and your power to save us. And God, today I pray for everyone in this room, for those who do not know you, I pray that they would experience for the very first time your power to save. And God, for those in this room who know you and who love you, who are occasionally fearful or ashamed of the gospel, God, I pray that they would see your power and that they would find strength in it, that they would find joy in it, that they would find mercy and grace in it, that they would see your mighty nature, and that it would give them a steeled-up backbone, that they are not willing to shrink back at the slightest sign of pressure or persecution. God, give us the ability to stand firm by your grace. Amen. Shame is an interesting thing. Shame is a very strange thing. It, it, it is a unique thing. And I think it's interesting for us to consider what are you ashamed of? What, what is it that causes you shamed? 
uh, to be ashamed. Are you willing to show everyone here your middle school pictures, what you looked like when you were in sixth grade? Uh, I'm glad that I was homeschooled during that time of my life, and no one has any knowledge except for my parents of what I was like. I'm thankful there's very minimal record of those days of my being. Um, what about when you're around people who have really good taste in music? They, they really like the the most superior kinds of sound, and they, they are very particular about what kind of albums they purchase, you're probably ashamed to let them know that you actually like Justin Bieber. And certainly we all have areas of sin in our past of which we should feel shame. Things that we've done that are contrary to the will of God, contrary to the command of God, and we would be deeply shamed if people knew that that was in our heart or that's something we had done with our hands. Paul begins this section of his letter by demanding nothing less than boldness and steadfastness in Timothy's life. But what kind of shame is Paul talking about here? We know exactly what he's talking about because he tells us what the opposite of shame looks like in the middle of verse 8. So I want you to see he's telling Timothy, do not be ashamed. And then see what he says in the middle of verse 8. He says, but or rather, or on the other hand, or this is the opposite of being ashamed, he says, but share in suffering for the gospel. So here, in this context, what does it mean to be ashamed? It means to avoid suffering at all cost, even if that means denying Christ or not standing up for him. So what specific thing is he telling Timothy not to be ashamed about? And what ways is he supposed to be sharing in suffering? Paul lists two things. First, he says in in verse 8, the beginning, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Essentially, he is saying, do not be ashamed about the gospel. Don't be ashamed of this message that you have heard. Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? Have you ever felt that welling up within you? Have you ever had the opportunity to share the truth about Christ and been instantly overcome with a sense that your audience is going to think that you are either crazy or stupid or evil so you don't say anything? Have you ever had somebody make fun of you or speak evil of you because of your beliefs and you shrunk back like a turtle going into its shell? I think that we've probably all felt like this at some point in our lives. We've probably all had those moments where we had opportunity to stand for Christ and we hunched back or we backed down. We naturally want everybody to like us. And I've heard a lot of people say, especially during my time, I was a a youth minister for seven years, so I've heard this a lot. People say, you know what? I don't care what anybody thinks about me. You know what's really funny about that? Usually the people who say that the loudest are the ones who are clearly from their appearance trying the hardest to make people like them. Everyone cares about what people think of them. It's very important to us that we have uh, somebody, our in-group, the people that we most prize or treasure, we want them to like us. We want everyone to like us. We want people to think that we are smart and that we are kind and that we are intelligent and that we are loving people. And it's not a bad thing to want people to like you. But we can sinfully allow our desire to be liked by our peers to supersede our allegiance to Jesus. And if you find yourself being consistently ashamed of Christ because you want to fit in, you are never willing to stand up for the gospel, then you are in a very dangerous place. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 26, 
If anyone would come after me, you know what he says. What do you have to do? Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You would not want to be associated with an executed prisoner who is carrying a cross, right? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And I will include with that your reputation, if you have the greatest reputation, yet forfeits himself or his soul. Verse 26, I want to zoom in on. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of all of his holy angels. This is really important because the last thing that you want to hear from Christ is, I'm ashamed of him. You want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. There's a big reason why we need to land on this passage today. Because if we consider, can uh, constantly fall back into rejecting our opportunities to stand for Christ, there is an evidence of a root in our heart that is deeply sinful. And perhaps it's even evidence that we don't know Christ at all. So we need to consider carefully what is being said here by Paul. Christ stood for us. He died in our place. He represented me before God. And he carried to the cross of Calvary my sin. And he endured the hatred of man. And he endured the wrath of God. And how could I say I am ashamed of him? That's insane. That's detestable and disturbing and untenable that I would be ashamed of somebody who has done that for me. So Paul admonishes Timothy to share in suffering by never being ashamed of the gospel. There's another thing of which he tells him not to be ashamed. Secondly, Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of Paul. Often when somebody goes to prison, they lose a lot of friends, right? It doesn't take a genius to to realize that people don't want to be associated with a criminal. If you're an open advocate of an enemy of the state, then the state is probably going to view you with suspicion at best and more likely with aggressive malice. This is why Peter denied knowing Jesus. Remember, there's literally a servant girl who questions him, and he doesn't want to be considered guilty by association. But Paul is helping Timothy here to understand we are all guilty by association. Every last one of us is guilty by association if we know Christ. That is why he will tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Now, I want you to see something really important. Paul promises Timothy here that he is going to experience suffering. I want you to join in. Do not hesitate. Do not back down from joining in suffering. And he mentions that I am a prisoner. But notice how he explains it. He presents himself not as a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of the state. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ. Do not be uh, afraid or ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, or he says, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul is not saying that Christ has imprisoned him. He's not saying that Christ has put me in a kind of jail. He is not saying that there that he is a prisoner of Christ. Rather, he is saying, I am a prisoner for Christ. He is noting that he belongs to Jesus, and this prison sentence is a way for Paul to represent Christ to the world. 
So allow me to present a scenario to you. It's going to be an extreme scenario, but let's pretend that you're at work one day and you're eating lunch when several of your fellow workers come in. You have four employees that come along around your table and they sit down, they plop out their, their lunch bags and they start pulling out their sandwiches and they don't know you very well and you don't know them very well, but they begin to speak about somebody else that is in your building, somebody else that you work with and we're simply going to call this individual, this somebody else, Bob. One of them says, hey, do you know what Bob believes? He was just telling me about his religion. He actually thinks that Jesus was real. And he believes that he really did miracles. And he believes that the Bible is true and that God actually did things like splitting the Red Sea and stopping the sun in the sky for half a day. He thinks that those stories about the donkey talking and people getting healed of leprosy, he thinks those things are actually true. What an idiot. And then the next person speaks up and says, yeah, Bob, that guy is an idiot. He hates science. He doesn't even believe in evolution. He thinks that his magical sky king made everything just by talking. And what's worse is he says that the universe makes the existence of God self-evident. And then the third person jumps in and says, yeah, that guy is an idiot, but he's also a hater. He thinks that if you don't believe what he says, then you're going to hell. Who does he think he is to say that kind of stuff to me? I'm a good person. I can do whatever I want. And then a fourth person jumps on board and says, yeah, not only is that guy a homophobe and a bigot who doesn't believe in gay marriage, but Bob believes crazy things. He believes that God is three and that God is one at the same time. He believes that God has a son. He believes that people were actually raised from the dead. He believes that there's life after death. And he believes that you should live according to his antiquated, archaic rule book. And what's worse is he thinks that he has a right to tell everyone about it. And then the four of them turn and they look at you and they ask, what do you think? Now, obviously, this is an exaggerated scenario. Life isn't really like this most of the time. And, of course, you know why it's not like this most of the time. It's because there are very few people like Bob that exist who are so faithful to speak what they know to be true. People as bold as him rarely exist in our workplaces. But what would you say in this situation? What would you say if this was you on the receiving end of that question? Actually, I I agree with Bob. I actually think that Your problem is characterizing some of what he believes, but I would love to talk to you about what the love of God has done for me. Is that how you would respond? Or would you act as though you have no connection with him? I don't know that guy. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I haven't ever really discussed this with him. I'm trying to just like shrug this off and move away from the conversation as quickly as possible. I got to get back to work, guys. Paul is telling Timothy to boldly stand up for the gospel and for the people of God. Do not give in to the pressure of the world. But here's the big question. How? How on earth am I supposed to do that? How on earth am I supposed to have the strength to do this without being ashamed? And that is the question we are going to spend the rest of our time this morning trying to answer. We are going to examine the two weapons that Paul gives Timothy to fight his inclination to be ashamed. So here's our two points for the day. That was all introduction. You're welcome. Point number one, it is what you know. And point number two, it is who you know. First, it's all about what you know. Paul tells Timothy to stand firm in suffering for the gospel. How? By the power of God. And then he proceeds to tell Timothy what the gospel is. Why would Paul do that? 
Why do you think Paul would say this to him? Don't you think Timothy has heard the gospel a thousand times? Don't you think he heard Paul teaching and preaching and proclaiming this for a decade when they were together? As Paul says, I was going house to house and house preaching the gospel to you. Don't you think Timothy has heard this before? Paul is the one who sent Timothy to Ephesus to do what? To preach this gospel So why would Paul repeat this gospel, this good news, this story, this message that, of course, Timothy has in his brain? Why would he say it again? Simply put, it's because if you understand the gospel, you know that it's there and then it quickly fades from your mind as you experience life. If you know the gospel and you stand firm on it and you hold fast to it and you remind yourself of it and if you keep it there then you will never be ashamed of Christ. So, speaking of the gospel, Martin Luther one time wrote, he said, I love this quote, he says, I treat or teach, as it were, I teach it again and again and again because I greatly fear that after we have laid our head to rest, it will soon be forgotten and will again disappear. And indeed, we cannot grasp or exhaust Christ, the eternal righteousness, with one sermon or thought, for to learn to appreciate him is an everlasting lesson which we shall not be able to finish either in this or yonder life. So do you see what he's saying here? Martin Luther, by that quote, was saying two things. I say the gospel over and over and over because you're so likely to forget it. And also, I say the gospel over and over and over because you've never gotten it in its fullness. There is still more for you to mine out. It is like a diamond mine where every time you go down, you come up with something more precious. What makes for a good sermon or a bad sermon? What is it that distinguishes between the two? What makes one Bible study a faithful one and one an unfaithful one? What is the difference between walking away from your personal Bible reading as a legalist or walking away as a committed Christian desiring to honor God by obedience? What is the difference between these two things? The answer to all of those questions is exactly the same, and that is that every message or study or personal time in the Word of God must be rooted and grounded in the gospel. A masterful scholar could present the most brilliant of biblical arguments from this pulpit. He could stand right here and proclaim faithfully the news, the information from the Bible, but it would be empty without the gospel. A superb orator could move us and cause us to laugh or to cry or, or, or to have deep thought, but without the gospel at its center, it's nothing more than a tickling of our ears. It's just fluff. And as we've said so many times from this pulpit, it is vital that we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. There is never a single New Testament command. And I challenge you, if you don't believe me, try it. When you do your studies, there is never a single New Testament command that is given without first being grounded in the reality of the fact that Jesus died in our place. That Jesus obeyed first. That Jesus has done what we cannot do So what is this good news? What is this gospel? If this is what we are to preach to ourselves, what is it? Let's explore how Paul explains it line by line to Timothy. Look at verse 9. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now don't move past that too quickly. He saved us means he saved us from something. He saved us from what? 
What is it that we are saved from? What are we called out of? What are we saved to? And what are we called to? Let's consider that for a moment. Timothy was with Paul when Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So Timothy would know these words very well, which say, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul is reminding Timothy, that's what you've been saved from. You've been called out of that. You've been called out and saved from sin and the effects of sin and the punishment of sin. It's not yours anymore because you've been brought out. And Timothy knows what he has been called and saved to. In those next few verses in Ephesians, it says, but God, even in the light of the fact that that is who I was, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So what has we been called to? What has he done for us by saving us? He has called us out of that death and he has made us alive. He has raised us up. He has given us a heavenly seat and he has given us promises that we will experience the immeasurable riches of his kindness and grace forever. Timothy, that's what you've been saved to. And back in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul continues his explanation of the gospel by saying, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This one line eliminates every other religion from view. There is no other religion besides faithful Christianity, which teaches that we were saved not by our own goodness, but by the goodness of someone else. Here he tells Timothy very simply, It is God who has done the work. It is not because of your works, but because of his own purpose and grace. What is grace? It is unmerited favor. You have not earned it. You have not bought it. There is nothing you could do to get it. So he is reminding Timothy, don't be proud, young man. Your salvation was not your own doing. You can't save yourself. Which again, by the way, perfectly parallels the way he presents the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Timothy, this was not you. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God is the prime actor in our salvation. He predestines us. He ordains us. He draws us. And he is the one who gives us the gifts of faith and repentance. The very fact that you are called a new creation speaks to the reality that you were made that way by a faithful creator. And Paul tells us exactly what our salvation was and when it was decided in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Look back down at your Bible. It says, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, when? Before the ages began. In Genesis 1-1, we read about the beginning of our planet. 
But in Ephesians 1.5, we actually read about what was taking place before the beginning of our planet. We read about God's plans that took place in eternity past. It says this, In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? To what He knew to be true about me? No. Did he look down through the corridors of time and see my actions? No, he did so according to the purposes of his will. Our adoption into the family of God was the plan that the Trinity had designed from all eternity past. But how did this plan play out in history? How does it fit into our timeline? Paul explains this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Look at it with me and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The plan of God was to redeem a people for himself, and it found its fullness, this plan found its fullness in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Paul could have cited any number of aspects of Christ's ministry, right? He could have talked about the miracles of Jesus and how Jesus was a great miracle worker. He could have talked about the healing ministry of Jesus or his compassion. But instead, Paul zooms in on a specific thing about Christ. And it's the one event upon which the entire universe hangs, the cross, the death of the Messiah, and his glorious resurrection. That's where Paul brings the gospel to. But I love the way that he describes it here. We find the abolition of death. Jesus conquered death by dying. And he brought us to life by himself being raised to life. And now he has brought life and immortality to light. This is important. And I think we need to pause here for a moment and just remind ourselves, everybody here, everybody in the world is going to exist forever. The person at the deli that you walked past yesterday, that person is going to live forever. Your children, your parents, they are going to live forever somewhere. All people have a a, a kind of immortality in the sense that they are never ending. Their soul is going to last forever. But some will experience everlasting life and some will experience eternal dying death without end so here when it's speaking about life and immortality it is speaking about being with christ in heaven forever the kind of immortal uh, existence that could only happen through christ because you were always going to exist forever but now you have the opportunity to exist forever with a savior who loves you most of you know my son athanasius uh he's three he's super cute uh his name comes from the greek word thanatos And Thanatos, if you know Greek at all, is the word for death. And you're probably thinking, they're terrible parents. They named their son Death. Um, Well, if you know the Marvel movies at all, you'll know the the character of Thanos. Thanos is the personal noun of the word death. So his name just means death. And Thanasios means the one who dies. Giving you a little Greek lesson here, right? Thanasios means the one who dies. But we didn't name our son Thanasios. We named him Athanasios. Think about this with me for a moment. We have, we have parallels here in English. The word muse means to think. The word amuse means not to think. Right? That's why they call movies amusement. Right? 
You're not thinking. You're not using your brain. To be moral means to act upon or act in line with what is right and what is good. To have a positive, healthy character. But to be amoral means that you are the opposite. That you have no moral compass. Therefore, Athanasios, which has what's called the privative alpha here at the beginning, means the one who doesn't die or immortal. And we have hope that by God's grace, Athens will someday trust in Christ and really have eternal life, that he will live forever. And if you are saved, then you have the promise of eternal life. And that promise is not something that is future, but present. Your eternal life begins at the moment of your salvation because your soul will never taste death. This is what Jesus is talking about when he speaks to Martha in John eleven twenty five through 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, now speaking physically, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What? He just said you're going to die. Physically. But spiritually, you're never going to die. You'll never taste it. It will never be a reality in your life. So our eternal life has begun, but there is going to be an even greater realization of it when we close our eyes in death. So Paul explains in this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. When the imperishable, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So this is the good news. And Paul grounds his own suffering in this. God has saved me from his own wrath. He has saved me to a perfect loving relationship with him. And he has given me promises that I will have that life forever with him. This is the good news. And Paul says, that's why I suffer. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a teacher and apostle and a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Why are you suffering, Paul? Why do you want me to suffer? Because of the gospel. In short, Paul says that he suffers because he was appointed by God to a holy calling. So it is what you know. It is what you know. You must know the gospel. You must have the gospel in your head. Not just have it in your head once in your life, but have it continually in your mind. That's why he reiterates it so often in the gospel or in the, in the New Testament. That is why he reiterates it now to Timothy. You must know the truth about what Christ has done for you before you can stand firm on it. The world and the flesh and the devil are all going to pull you in a direction of being ashamed of Jesus. We do not intuit boldness. We do not conjure up a spirit of courage out of thin air. We must be prepared for moments of persecution before they ever come. And we prepare ourselves by daily grounding our lives in the truth of the gospel. It is what you know. But now we come to point number two. It is also who you know. Paul is now going to explain to Timothy how he personally has remained steadfast, even in the face of imprisonment and the threat of execution. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy from prison. He is writing from a place called the Mamertime Prison. Please understand it is not like our prisons where there are workout rooms and where they can get a job, where they can get education and where they can 
have a television and all these things. It, I'm not saying prison is, is, is like a retirement home, but I am saying that our prisons are way more kind and friendly to their inmates than they were in the first century. The Mamertine prison still exists. It is in the Roman Forum. You can go see it. It is essentially just a big dirt hole in the ground. It is disgusting. And they had now they have stairs that they have built down there, but they used to just have a circle from the first floor and they would drop the people through it to the 12 feet below to where they would then sit and wait. Paul is an old man at this point. He has experienced a lot of physical strain and suffering in his body, and now they just take him and they plop him down this hole, and then if he ever wants to eat, somebody has to bring food to him. This man is experiencing suffering, and he is going to tell Timothy how he did it. The gospel is not just a formula. It's not like math. It's not just some dry data that we're supposed to recite to ourselves. It's not like a mantra where you just... Sit there and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. It is not an incantation that we are simply supposed to say again and again in order to mystically ward off fear. It is not merely an intellectual tool that sets our minds at ease. Let me just give you an example here. I have a friend. He is still a friend. I'm planning to actually talk with him on the phone tomorrow uh, from the church I grew up in. This man loves the Lord. I know him. I, I respect this man. But he does something that to me is not healthy. Uh, I don't believe this is how we should we should operate. He says, if he ever feels uh, like he's having a bad day, he will sit down and he will just say the word Jesus a hundred times. Now, perhaps you can do that, and you can you can be thinking about the gospel. You can be thinking about the way that Christ has saved you. You can maybe he's doing that. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Perhaps he is using this as a way to actually remind himself of the truth of Scripture. But honestly, I think what he is doing is much more akin to Eastern monism than it is to Christianity. It is a mantra. It is, it is like a spell almost that is being used to say, I just don't want this bad stuff to happen. That is not what we see ever taking place in the New Testament. Our knowledge of the gospel is designed to be substantive and rich and full of the reality of what has taken place. But the gospel, that is the good news, is also personal. It is all about Jesus himself. And Paul is strong because he not only knows the truth about God, he not only knows the facts, but he also knows God. And he trusts that God is never going to fail him. Let me give you an example here. This summer, I took our kids down to the local Levittown pool. Uh, It's wonderful. We we take them over there uh, plenty of times. And I have four of them, so it can be a little bit stressful getting them in and out of the water, and they all love the water. So we've had to teach them, this can kill you. If you jump in and nobody's around to help you, because of the fact that you can't swim, this water is very dangerous to you. And my daughter, Petra, who is five, she really took that to heart. She knows that water is dangerous, and if I jump in, I could die. So one time I I, I took her down to the pool, and I was trying to get her to jump to me. So stand on the edge, and I'll stand over here, and you just, you just jump in. I, I, I want you to understand, I'm not asking you, Petra, to jump in by yourself and just figure it out and just brave these waves by yourself. I was standing there telling her, jump to me. And when we started out, she would look at the water. She wouldn't look at me. She would just look at the water, and she wouldn't jump in. And finally, I told her, Petra... I am your daddy, and I will always do what's best for you, and I love you, and I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to jump to me. 
And then she would trust me, and then she would jump. And then she would get out, and we'd do the whole process over again. Paul summarizes what he's saying in, in, in this way. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. He's saying, know the truth in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Notice, follow the patterns of words is what you know, but in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus is personal. It's about who you know. Later on in the book, in chapter 4, he's going to tell Timothy, listen, Timothy, everybody left me at my first offense. No one stood up for me, but the Lord stood by me. Now, did he see Jesus personally and physically represented next to him in that courtroom? I don't think so. But he knew the presence of Jesus was with him. So how are we to stand when we feel shame? How are we to stand firm when we feel the criticism coming towards us? How do you stand firm? Is because you know whom you have believed. And you know him. Finally, he closes with this very important line. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you. Now, it is God who saves us. It is God who strengthens us. It is God who preserves us to the final day. Paul said that he trusted God to guard what has been entrusted to me. Right? Doesn't he say that? He says, for I know whom I have believed, and, and, and I know that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Who is doing the guarding? God is doing the guarding. Paul says, I know that I can trust him with this. What is the good thing he's talking about being guarded? It's our salvation. So then he tells Timothy, you guard it. So this is a little bit confusing. Who is actually guarding our salvation? Who is actually ensuring that we are saved people? The answer here is when Paul is speaking of himself, he says, God is the one doing it. And when he talks to Timothy, he says, you need to guard the good deposit. So which is it? Does God do it or do we do it? The answer, obviously, is a resounding yes. Yes. God does it, and we do. This passage parallels what we find in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, which says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You do that. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For or because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. So who does the work in you? Is it you or is it God? Yes, it is. We work in collaboration with God. We are functionally operating to grow in him. And so as a believer, it is possible for you to resist the work of the Spirit. It is possible for you to grieve the Spirit. It is possible for you to do things that God does not desire for you to do. So what he's saying here is salvation is one-sided. Salvation is all from God. But in your sanctification, God desires you to be involved in that process. He desires for you to operate in step, as it says in Galatians 5 and 6, walk in step with the Spirit. Paul is laying side by side the realities of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And this is important because nobody in this room is allowed to say, you know what? If God wants me to stand firm, if God wants me to be stronger in my faith, if God wants me to be a, a healthy, mature Christian, you know what? He's just going to have to do that because I can't do it. Well, on the one hand, that's accurate. But on the other hand, you are required, it is your responsibility to work in step with God to grow, to be more like Jesus Christ. 
God is going to guard his sheep, but if you are going to go on in an apathetic, lethargic rebellion, it is then evidence that you are not actually a sheep, but a wolf. So let's stand firm. Let's stand firm like Paul is commending Timothy to do, unwavering in the face of persecution, grounded on the truth of the gospel. And let's be bold and courageous knowing that God has orchestrated every last trial that you will ever face. Why did he orchestrate them? For your good and for his glory. So you're experiencing suffering. So you're experiencing persecution. So somebody comes against you and thinks you're a fool or, or that you're just not on their level. To God be the glory. I count it great, great joy to, to be ashamed, not to feel ashamed of Christ, but to be treated poorly with him and for him, joining in his suffering. What, a, what an honor. And let's stand our ground knowing that it is Jesus Christ who stood for us. If you're in Christ Jesus, he stood for you and he embraced you and he is the one who sent the spirit to indwell you. So let's stand firm knowing what Paul has taught us today, knowing the gospel in our minds, but knowing the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, in such a saturated gospel sermon, Lord, I pray that if anyone here who doesn't know you hears these things, they would not shut off their minds, but they would hear with their human natural ears. But God, I also pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give them special hearing, ears to hear, the ability to understand what can only be discerned spiritually. And God, I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here who is currently struggling to stand firm in their conviction, to stand firm in what they know to be true about Christ, to stand firm in their workplace or with their families, that's fearful to share the gospel because of reprisal, who is fearful to stand up for other believers who know you because they don't want to be thought of as as insane. Lord, I pray that any one of us would find it to be an honor to suffer for your sake. Please, God, give us the ability to stand firm like you have called us to do. Lord, we cannot do this on our own, but Lord, I pray that we would work in step with the Spirit to do this with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.